This podcast contains material that some listeners may find objectionable. It may contain graphic descriptions of atrocities committed during the 1937 Nanking Massacre in China. On December 13, 1937, Japanese soldiers occupied Nanking, the capital city of the Chinese nationalists. As soon as Nanking fell, Japanese soldiers went on a rampage of killing, burning, looting, and raping. Within a few days, Nanking was reduced to a hell on earth. Gunshots and human wailing filled the air. Corpses were piled on roads and in ditches. Fires lit the sky at night, and smoke blackened the horizon during the day. Over half the city was set ablaze. Homes and shops were broken into and looted, if not burned. Girls as young as twelve and women as old as eighty were raped, and some were tortured to death. According to the verdict of the Tokyo War Crimes Trial of 1946, during the first six weeks of Japanese occupation, an estimated 200,000 Chinese were slaughtered, and in the first month, at least 20,000 women were raped. And the atrocities committed by the Japanese did not subside for several more weeks, until late February of 1938. Some 20 Europeans and Americans who had refused to evacuate Nanking organized the International Committee for the Nanking Safety Zone and established a safety zone in the city to shelter refugees. Among these humanitarian Westerners, Minnie Votrin was the one most devoted to protecting Chinese women and children. This program tells the story of Minnie Votrin, a woman from central Illinois who spent her life working to improve the status and education of women in China. At Nanking, she and her Chinese colleague, Sen Shui Fan, sheltered and cared for some 10,000 women and children. Throughout this time, both women kept daily diaries, which are collected in the book The Undaunted Women of Nanking, published by Southern Illinois University Press. You've just heard an excerpt from the introduction to this book. The full text of both diaries will be included on this program. To capture the full scope of Minnie Votrin's story, we'll also be drawing later in the show from a biography of her life titled American Goddess at the Rape of Nanking by Hua Ling Hu, which is also published by SIU Press. This is how Minnie Votrin's diary begins. Wednesday, December 8th, 1937. At 9 a.m. this morning, we practiced receiving refugees and have our method well in hand. Pupils of our neighborhood school, Big Wang's three children, and Mrs. Sen's grandson, 
are five ushers, and they look quite important with their special sleeve bands. Six of the servants have also been assigned to help. Mr. Francis Chen and Yang Shi Fu are to stand outside the gate and try to get people in order, according to families. We are to put local people in dormitories and refugees from cities like Wuxi into the central building. We are permitting local families to live in neighborhood house, and it is pretty well filled already. We can hear distant cannonading today, which seems to be at the south. How long it will take before the Japanese army are in the city, we do not know. I am fearful that Chinese army will be bottled up here. This evening we are receiving our first refugees, and what heartbreaking stories they have to tell. They are ordered by Chinese military to leave their homes immediately. If they do not, they will be considered traitors and shot. In some cases, their houses are burned if they interfere with the military plans. Most of the people come from near Southgate in the southeast part of city. Safety zone flags were put up today, the red cross in a red circle. Tonight I look 60 and feel 80. Did not go to the press conference because I wanted to help receive refugees. It is quite cold these days, but fortunately we have sunshine and there is neither rain or snow. Miss Lowe moved to practice school today and will help us look after refugees. She will supervise those in practice school. A notice from the embassy reads, simultaneously with the departure of other foreign diplomatic officers, the remaining officers of the American embassy will this evening board the USS Panay and establish temporary embassy offices there. It is expected that officers of the embassy will return to the premises on shore during daytime tomorrow. When information is received that the Xiaquan gate is closed, the Panay will move from its present anchorage off San Chia River. Ropes for assistance in evacuating over the city wall are being given into the custody of Dr. M.S. Bates. But how did Minnie Votrin, a woman from central Illinois with no family connection to China, find herself in Nanking at this pivotal moment? And how did she gain the courage and authority to defy the brutal Japanese occupying force? To answer these questions and many more, we draw from a biography of Minnie Votrin titled American Goddess at the Rape of Nanking. On the vast central Illinois prairie is a village named Secor. The village, amid cornfields, is so small that one may have a difficult time finding it on an ordinary map. It is located about 22 miles northwest of Bloomington and 28 miles east of Peoria, Illinois. Its population has never exceeded 700 since it was founded in 1857. In 1883, Edmund L. Votrin came to Secor. The young man, at age 17, immigrated alone to the United States from Lorraine, France, to seek a better life. Although at the time he could only speak some broken English, 
he quickly managed to win the heart of a local young lady, Pauline Lair, and they got married. Edmund and his wife gave birth to two boys and one girl. The oldest one died in infancy. Their middle child was a girl named Minnie, born on September 27, 1886. The little girl learned hard work at a tender age. When she was only six years old, her mother suddenly died, so Minnie had to shoulder most of the household chores and take care of her younger brother. Despite these large responsibilities, she also excelled at school. Her beloved first teacher commended the hardworking girl, saying, she could excel in most anything she tried and was a genuinely Christian girl. Minnie was a born student. She admired the teaching profession, dreaming of being a good teacher herself when she grew up. However, her family could not financially afford to educate her, nor would her father support her schooling. She realized that if she wanted to be educated, she must earn her own way. She started to save money at a young age and worked hard at numerous jobs. After her father remarried and her stepmother relieved her of some of the household chores, Minnie had more time to work for others. In the meantime, she often did volunteer work and taught Sunday school at the churches in the village. In 1903, at age 17, Minnie graduated from high school and formally became a member of the Christian Church in Secor. She then enrolled at Illinois State University, 15 miles east of the village. Although the university was then a two-year teacher's college, it took Minnie four years to graduate because she had to leave school several times and work to earn money for tuition and other expenses for the following quarter. Her grades were excellent. She received 90 points of 100 or above on courses such as algebra, geometry, spelling, accounting, orthography, economics, and bookkeeping. After graduating from the university on June 6, 1907, Minnie taught at a high school in Leroy, Illinois for several years. Then she matriculated at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana to pursue a Bachelor of Arts degree in education. She still earned her own way, working at various jobs, even selling the Encyclopedia Britannica door to door. Now let's return to Minnie Votrin's wartime diary, Thursday, December 9th. Tonight the flames are lighting the sky above the whole southwest corner of the city, and during much of the afternoon we have seen clouds of smoke rising from every direction save northwest. The aim of the Chinese military is to get all obstructions out of their way. Obstructions for their guns and possible ambush or protection for Japanese troops. McDaniel of Associated Press says he watched the fires being started with kerosene. The owner of these houses are the refugees who have been coming into the city in great crowds during the last two days. If this method delays the Japanese 12 to 24 hours in entering the city, I wonder if it is worth what it costs in human misery. It is almost impossible to get mail out now. The post office is not receiving any more. This morning I wrote four letters and tried first a man at the Metropolitan Hotel, then the British Embassy, and finally the American Embassy. As we were at the press conference this evening, 
a huge shell landed at Xin Chie Ko, which made us all start from our seats, and I fear some turned pale. This was the first artillery fire we have had. There was not an hour today when we did not hear airplanes. The conference for a time tonight consisted of two press men, two Chinese, and the rest were missionaries. It looks as if press conferences will be no more. I found when I reached my room that the concussion was so great that it knocked a pot of flowers from my window. We probably have 300 refugees on campus tonight. Some have come from Wuxi, others from outside the city, and still others from our neighborhood. About 1,500 are already at Bible Teachers Training School. The one o'clock radio broadcast spoke of signs of peace after Nanking has been taken. I dread to learn the demands that will be made. The stories of refugees are heartbreaking. Today, a woman came in weeping bitterly, saying she had come into the city on an errand. But her 12-year-old daughter could not get through the city gate, nor could she get out to her. The little girl is at the Kuanghua gate, where the fighting is worst. Another woman came from Sanchia River and was frantically looking for her mother. When she could not find her in our campus, we sent her over to Bible Teachers Training School. Tomorrow will probably be a day of severe fighting, when the Japanese will try their best to get into the city. Later found out from Fukuda that an advance guard actually did reach Kuanghua Gate on December 10, but were repulsed. Minnie's coming of age coincided with the blossoming of American interest in foreign missionary work led chiefly by the Student Volunteer Movement for Foreign Missions. The Student Volunteer Movement achieved its greatest success in the Midwest. Illinois was one of the top five states in terms of membership. By 1914, about 6,000 young Americans went to foreign countries as missionaries, over one-third of them to China. One missionary cried at the convention of the movement in 1894, Why should I go to China? One reason is because a million a month that great land are dying without God. Can you picture what it is to die without God? Another one echoed the same sentiment. Oh, brothers and sisters, can you picture what it is to live without God? Have you ever thought of it, to have no hope for the future and none for the present? There was no doubt the missionaries wanted to help the Chinese people because of humanitarianism. They believed that Christianity, as the supreme force to elevate the Western world to power and wealth, could save a struggling China from superstition, social injustice, and evils. By the end of the 19th century, tensions were high between the reform leaders, who actively sought the help of foreign missionaries, and the Empress Dowager's conservative Manchu court faction. These tensions culminated in June 1900 with the Boxer debacle, when, under the order of the Empress Dowager, the Boxers attacked and killed foreign legations in Beijing. This led a coalition of seven Western powers, including the United States, to join Japan and crush the boxers. After this incident, it was clear even to the Empress Dowager that China must reform and Western methods must be adopted. 
American missionaries began to be welcomed, setting the stage for many Votrans' entrance in China. In 1912, when she graduated from the University of Illinois with honors, she immediately joined the Foreign Christian Missionary Society and decided to go to China. At the time, she was 26 years old. When Minnie first arrived in Hefei in the fall of 1912, it was an entirely strange country to her. She knew very little about the people or the language, so she spent most of her first two years learning the language and culture. Although Hefei was known as the birthplace of several famous scholars and dignitaries, the society was much more conservative than in the big cities and treaty ports, and still held on to the belief that ignorant women are virtuous women. Women's status was extremely low. Girls were instructed to obey their fathers, husbands, and sons, according to the Confucian teachings. Infanticide of girls was prevalent and foot-binding was generally practiced. A pair of small-bound feet was still regarded as a girl's best asset to good marriage, even though the Empress Dowager, reportedly due to pressure from foreign women of various nationalities, had outlawed the crippling practice in 1902. As to women's education, it was pathetic. Following the Boxer disaster in 1900, the Manchu court had moved to establish Western-style primary and middle schools nationwide, yet it made no provisions for girls' education. In 1904, the court announced that it was inappropriate to establish female education because of the difference in etiquettes and customs between the Chinese and the West. Although in 1907 the Education Commission added primary and normal schools for girls in its national education system, many places, such as rural areas, had no schools for girls. The Chinese made no concrete attempt to establish co-educational primary schools, nor to include girls' middle schools in the national education program until after the establishment of the Republic in 1912. It was the missionaries who filled the vacuum and became the main providers of educating Chinese girls. Nevertheless, Chinese parents, especially in a conservative place like Hefei, generally believed that it was a total waste to educate their daughters. Most of the women and girls were illiterate. Seeing the situation with her own eyes, Minnie vowed to elevate the status of Chinese women. She became even more determined to devote her life to the promotion of their education. After months of hard work and frustration, she was eventually able to establish the Sanqing Girls Middle School in Hefei. The school, under her administration, grew strong and outstanding, becoming well-known outside the Hefei area. Join us next time as the Japanese occupation looms nearer, and we hear for the first time from the diary of Sen Shui Fan. Today all day, the artilleries are shelling continuously. Siren warnings from Liu Shou Hill have ceased to come. Da Xiao Chang is captured. Quite a few people come inside the city. The thundering sound of enemy's airplanes and artilleries fill the outside. <laughs>